Let's jump into the sermon, and um, as we do so, this morning we get into kind of the nitty-gritty of end times and uh, talking about end times. And I want to say something to you this morning, and we need to be crystal clear on this. As we approach this subject, some of you are salivating. You can't wait uh, because you love to talk about it, and others of you are yawning. Uh, uh, you, you think, wow, you know, I've just really never had an interest. And I would say, as I've been reading a C.S. Lewis essay on the subject this week, that somewhere in the middle of that is a good place to be. And uh, so I want to say that, first of all. Secondly, uh, what I want to say uh, to you is that uh, some of you will disagree with my position on when things happen. And that is okay, all right? Uh, this is... Uh, eschatology, this is end times, and so some of you are going to believe that Jesus, that the rapture takes place here, and others are going to believe it takes place here, and today it is obvious where I believe it takes place, and some of you will will disagree with me. I really enjoy, and I mean this, pastoring a church that has different points of view on things like this. I have no desire to take uh, the, the um, you know, name and put a bunch of subtitles under it that were this and this and this and this and this. I love the fact that we have essentials, uh, we have unity on essentials here, and uh, we have great love on the non-essentials, all right? So if this is so near and dear to you and it's different from what I think and it leads you to be argumentative, you need to repent, all right? Not that you disagree with me, but that it leads you to argue. There, there's just no need to argue over this, all right? So, so you just need to repent of that. You're owning your, your idea too much, and I call that theological legalism, okay? When you take uh, whatever your grid is and your grid becomes so huge. So, so I just want to preface today's sermon because we're about to launch in and, and, and talk about the rapture. And when you talk about the rapture, you've got to say, okay, this is when I think it's going to happen based on scripture. And so I wanted to preface our sermon with that this morning. As we launch in, what in the world is the rapture? Uh, If we're going to talk about it, we need to understand what it is. The word never occurs in the New Testament uh, as such. And so what is the word? We get the word rapture actually from uh, the Latin translation of scripture. uh, And it's the word that means to be forcibly removed, to be suddenly taken away. Uh, The word rapture means. And so it comes from the Latin translation of scripture and Uh, That's where we get the word into English. And uh, Paul is answering some questions here in this passage. And it's the second uh, kind of observation I want you to get about this passage. Is that Paul isn't going headlong into a discussion of eschatology. He's going around the curve, if you will. And the question has been asked of him about those people who have died... Uh, in the faith. Uh, The Thessalonians are really concerned about those people, and at some point, either they've written him a letter or it's been communicated to him somehow from them that there are concerns about dead people, those who have died already, and so this is all done in a pastoral sense. Paul, uh, speaking very much like a pastor, wants to comfort these people, and he wants to give the truth to them. 
And, and as pastors, our job is to do both. We are to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Uh, we share the truth when it feels good and when it doesn't feel good. And so here, it feels good for all but one group. And we'll see that uh, at the end of the sermon. So Paul is laying out um, an answer to their question about concerns over those who have died in the faith. And Paul says, I do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. He doesn't say, I do not want you to grieve. He says, but I don't want you to grieve hopelessly. I don't want you to grieve without hope. Why would Paul say that? Please hear me. This is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. You see, other religions and philosophies in Paul's day did not hold out hope for the end of life. As a matter of fact, I'll give you some quotes that were uh, contemporary with Paul. Uh, One quote is of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. A second quote uh, about Theocritus, hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. Catullus said, sons may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. Uh, Lucretius says, no one awakes and arises who has once been overtaken by the chilling end of life. And uh, a heathen tomb in Thessalonica itself bore the inscription, after death there is no revival, after the grave no meeting of those who have loved each other on earth. So the prevailing idea in Paul's day was that there was no hope after life. That was the prevailing thought. And Paul writes, they write him or ask him questions against that backdrop. And Paul writes back to them against this backdrop of a hopeless existence after this life. He writes about And so we discover from Paul's uh, uh, writing to them uh, four truths about the rapture, the catching away of the church from the earth. Number one, the rapture comforts us because we believe. Now, if you have read some of the popular books on it, it can freak you out at first. You read it, and even as a believer, you think, oh, wow, and it can just freak you out. The rapture is never intended to make the believer afraid. And Paul makes that clear here. Uh, He wants to give comfort, and the rapture comforts us because we believe. Notice this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep in him. All right, so the rapture comforts us because we believe. What do we believe? This is absolutely essential, and I want you to hear me on this. All right, I want you to hear me on this. I've had more than one person who simply attends this church angry at me this week for this very thing. Here's what we believe. We believe that we are so essentially flawed that Jesus had to die for us. And so amazingly loved that he was glad to die for us. That's what we believe. 
That's the gospel. We are so flawed that Jesus had to die for us. There was absolutely no other way. And I've dealt with more than one person this week personally who's angry at me because I suggested they might be flawed. Okay. We are. We're born messed up. We, we come into this world. All you got to do is hang out with all these kids who are on the stage and see how long it takes for the youngest of them to want everything possible around him or her. And know that uh, if you have kids, they come into the world screaming, hollering, and pitching uh, temper tantrums, don't they? We are, we are so flawed that Jesus had to die for us. We are so loved that he was glad to die for us. That's the gospel. We believe that. Please hear me. If you cannot come to terms with sin in your life, if you cannot admit that your sin separates you from God, you will never, ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the beginning point. It's the beginning point for every single human being on the face of the earth. We are essentially flawed sinners in need of a savior. And so since we believe that this Jesus who had to die for us was exceedingly glad to die for us, that his death on the cross bridged the gap between a holy, sinless God and a W-H-O-L-L-Y, sinful person. Since we believe that, the rapture, the return of that Jesus who was glad to die for us ought to bring us hope. We ought to be excited at his return. When we anticipate that he is going to come for us, come to receive us, and he did that for us already, why wouldn't you want to see him? Why wouldn't you be absolutely thrilled and just excited to see such a Savior? Do you know why? Because so many people in our self-esteem culture dare not go to the place to say, oh, I may have screwed up. I may be sinful. I may have blown it. I may be wrong. There may be something wrong with me that desperately needs some work. But that's what we believe. It's interesting. There are two words here. In this passage, to describe death, both of which run as strains through the New Testament. One is sleep, and the other is died. Now, the word sleep that runs as a strain through the, through the New Testament is a comforting word. This doesn't suggest soul sleep at all. We don't have time to get into that today. What does it suggest? What does it mean? Let me tell you this. That when the, uh, Paul says those who have fallen asleep, it's a passive participle. And here's what it suggests. If it's passive, then somebody else did the acting. All right? That's what it means. It's a picture of someone else putting someone else to sleep. Of a mom rocking her baby to sleep. All right. I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever fallen asleep? Raise your hand. All right, up high, everybody in the room, right? For every single one of you, however many times you've fallen asleep, you've had practiced dying as a believer. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. On your easiest night of falling asleep, that's death for the believer. 
I would say, as Chuck Tripp sits here, who works with hospice patients, Dr. Gozi comes here, who does the same, Diane Brooks, Gene Alden, folks who work with our hospice here, tremendous ministry. When they walk into the room of someone who's dying, it is entirely appropriate to picture the Heavenly Father, that person cradled in his arms, rocking them to sleep. That's the picture. That's the picture for the believer. It's the picture that Paul paints. Death for the person who knows Christ is that effortless and that glorious and that gracious and that tender and that wonderful. Why? Because of the other word that occurs in this very passage. For if we believe that Jesus died, that word refers to a death by violent means. Usually sin involved. Here's what someone had to say about it. I love how he says it. I can't say it better. It says his death brought the death of death. In dying as our sin bearer, he transformed death for believers into sleep with a future awakening. This is critical. Please hear me. Attending this church will not get you into heaven. Many of you just gave money. And we are grateful it will not get you there. Because your dad was this, or your mom was this, or somebody somewhere told you that you were a pretty good person, none of that will get you into heaven. There is only one way. It is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who had to die for you because you're that sinful as am I, and was glad to die for you. Because you're that loved as am I. The rapture comforts us because we believe. Secondly, the rapture comforts us because Jesus himself is coming for us. Notice this. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that's an authoritative statement, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus is not sending an angelic host. He isn't sending an ambassador. He himself is coming. He himself is coming for us. I have the privilege every year of performing many weddings. So we go through all of the premarital counseling. We go through all of the uh, preliminaries. We talk about so many different things. And we are then ready on the day of for the wedding. And it is my privilege, and it is a funny one at times, to be tucked back into a tiny little room usually with the groom who hates being in front of people. And so he and I are back there, best man is in there with us, and literally I have been back there and literally seen grooms just shaking, shaking and wondering, will they make it out to the front? Could you imagine this scenario? The groom looks at me and says, I can't do this. Would you go and tell her I do and all that and tell her it's from me? 
Could you imagine when I walk out and she comes and she opens those doors and that center aisle is ready and the, the bride, uh, uh, the, the, the mother of the bride stands and everybody follows her cue and they all stand and they turn to look and here she comes and she looks up there and there is no groom. <laughs> you know, I'm bald and ugly. She's, she's not going to be happy to see me. She wants to see him. Jesus is coming back himself for his bride. The Lord himself will descend. He's not sending an emissary. He's not sending an angelic host. It will be Jesus just as he left. He will come again and receive us to himself, he said, that where I am there you may be also. Jesus is coming back. Jesus himself, we will finally get to see him. Now, my persuasion, eschatology, I happen to believe or think, I should say, that he's just leaning over the balcony of heaven waiting for the moment. I believe he, he so loves us and we don't get this, okay? I struggle to get it. I said last week, we often struggle to receive the love of God for us. But I believe Jesus is just leaning over the balcony of heaven, longing, longing for the time when he can come and take us to be with himself. He himself is coming. The Lord himself will descend. And then there's something interesting here. Nobody really knows exactly what to make of it. I would, I would warn anyone from taking this text and making it too technical. It wasn't Paul's original intention. Look at this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So the question is, will those happen sequentially or simultaneously? I don't know. Here's what I think. I think that the Jesus who spoke this into existence with a spoken word, with one shout, is going to welcome us home. Just one shout. It's singular. Cry of command. If he could say, let there be light and darkness dissipates, I don't know what the word will be, can't conjecture what it would be, but one word's all that's necessary and graves are going to split open and he's going to come back. That's why we sing, we believe our God is Jesus. We believe that he is Lord. He, he's that powerful. With a cry of command. I, I think that it's going to be a, a cry of command and then the voice of the archangel and then a trumpet. And all of a sudden, this is going to happen in such tremendous, glorious, incomprehensible fashion. That phrase, cry of command, is the same word used, to, used of a rower, a captain of rowers, when he shouts out directives to all his rowers as to which way to go. It's the same word used by, uh, to describe a captain who has a battalion under him when he directs them. It's the same word used to describe uh, a, uh, a horseman who has uh, multiple horses at his bidding and simply cries and orders the chariots to go a certain direction. In every single example that this word is used, it is a superior and an inferior 
It is a leader and a follower. At that moment, Jesus, who was once defamed and defrauded, cheated, broken, he who became sin for us, who knew no sin, at that moment will give a cry as the King of kings and Lord of lords. What great comfort that gives us that he himself is coming for us. This afternoon, this evening, 5 o'clock, we're going to baptize 25 people. It's amazing. They range in age from young, teenagers, to older folks, middle-aged people. Talk to Gerald Edney. Many of you know Gerald. He'll be baptized this afternoon. So excited for how God is at work in his life. Talk to, uh, to Sherry Logan, who'll be baptized this afternoon. Thrilled for what God is doing, has done, and is doing. Pike and Holly, who sit right here, who are going to be baptized along with their son and daughter. Entire family. Do you know why they do this? Because it's a picture as they go into the water of their death to their old self, raising, resurrecting to live an entirely new life. And for all of us who are believers, we duke it out the rest of our lives with sin, don't we? But when this cry of command comes, there's no more battle. No more battle against sin. No more battle against doubt and fear and all of these things that have assailed us. Number three, the rapture comforts us because we will always be with the Lord. That tiny little word always is huge. Do you know what death is? It's the ultimate separator. Death uh, draws a line in the sand and says to the living, you cannot cross this. And, And it separates as I've been in my ministry with many, many people who have died and with their family members once they have died, the pain comes from the 35-year-old woman who loses her mother because for all of her 35 years, she's only known one mom. And then all of a sudden, mom is gone. Death is the ultimate separator. It takes what always was and makes it Not now. But the rapture takes the not now and makes it always. Death takes what always was and makes it not now. But the rapture takes the what is not now and makes it always. You say, why? Well, there is this great meeting in the air. That meeting in the air is between those who have died who are raised first. The Thessalonians were concerned about them, but they get raised first. The cry of command comes, and they're raised first. Let me clear up something that puzzles people. If, if Jesus is bringing your loved ones back with him, how will their bodies be raised from the dead? Because Paul says both here. Well, when your loved ones die, their spirit goes to be with the Lord. Their bodies are put into the tomb. Their bodies do matter. They will be resurrected. Bodies are valuable to God. They're put in the tomb. So when Jesus comes back, they get a new resurrected body united with that spirit. And we are caught up with them together in the air. 
What a great meeting that will be. You sit here right now, some of you do, and you picture a mom or a dad. You picture a sister or a brother. You picture a family member. It is entirely appropriate that the rapture for you be a glorious moment of reunion. And the what not now will always. And so we will always be with the Lord. The rapture comforts us because we will always be with the Lord. Yesterday, Hannah played volleyball uh, in a tournament, and the games were over, and I was walking out, and I saw one of Hannah's teammates just come running up to another girl who had been sitting in the stands, and they jumped into each other's arms, and they just hugged each other, and then they began to cry. I had no idea the story, but you know what I surmised? Evidently, this girl hasn't seen this girl in quite a while. They were separate. And for this moment, they were together. Everybody stopped. Everybody around just stopped and kind of eavesdropped in on their moment. Why? There's something about us that loves that. We love that. We love the meetings in the airport with the family members who haven't seen each other in so long. We love that. There's something that is put within us that makes us want to be together, to stay together. The rapture. Comforts us because we will always be with the Lord. This uninhibited worship, I thought as we were singing earlier, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, how awesome that was to hear your voices just lift up in this place. And I just picture Jesus seated on the throne as Isaiah must have seen him. And I pictured that and I thought about all of us singing. And my mind quickly skipped over to being in Columbia, South Carolina, in a stadium during Promise Keepers full of men at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning when in that stadium in Columbia, South Carolina, which, by the way, is Howard, but anyway, in that stadium in Columbia, South Carolina, to hear thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of men sing, holy, holy, holy. It was amazing. Could we for a moment allow ourselves to picture saints from centuries gone by, martyrs, those who have died just today in China, in Africa for the faith. Could we allow ourselves to picture us with them Israel, when we were in Israel, those of you who were in Israel may recall this. We were at the side of the empty tomb. It's a glorious experience to be there. Look down into that tomb, believed to be the tomb where Jesus was laid, not sure. But then a group from Nigeria came in behind us. They had been to the place of the skull. And they came back singing. I can't remember what they were singing. It wasn't in our language, but it was a hymn we knew. And the guy sharing with us said, just yesterday, they lost, I think he said, 29 of their own people for the faith. And today, they're walking from the cross to the empty tomb, singing. If we could allow ourselves 
to see ourselves with all of these people. The rapture comforts us because we will always be with the Lord. Finally, the rapture confronts unbelievers because I believe it ushers in the great tribulation. Say, so, Jerry, what is the great tribulation? We'll deal with that next week and the week following, I think. But the great tribulation is this period of seven years when unbelievable events will occur on the earth. Unbelievable things. I believe the church will be raptured before it. Some believe the church will be raptured afterward. Let me give you just a few reasons for my position. Very next chapter, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't believe the church is destined for wrath. Revelation 3.10 promises that the church will be kept, quote, kept from the hour of trial, which shall come come upon the whole world. To me, that is convincing. But to me, what is most convincing, and as I have battled through this and prayed through this and, and just studied, to me what is most convincing is the belief by so many New Testament writers of the imminent return of Christ. I can't get around that. So many of them wrote and spoke of Jesus' return as if he could come back in their day. They told people to prepare now for the return of Christ. And it seems that if there was going to be a tribulation and then the rapture, that the warning would be to prepare for the tribulation, prepare for the signs of the tribulation, anticipate the signs of the tribulation. But let me say this. I have good friends who who are post-tribulationist, and every one of them says they hope I'm right. All right? Because there's no one in their right mind who wants to live during that. No one does. And the reason the rapture confronts believers is because it ushers in this period of time of the unfolding of God's wrath. Revelation 6 through 18 gives you some idea of what's going to happen during that time. So, Jerry, what should I do? I'm glad you asked. I'll close with this. Two things. Number one, if you're a believer, after today, you ought to see death differently. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. If we believe. And that's for the second group. If you do not believe that your sins necessitated the death of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, which leads to his return, if you do not believe that, You live a life void of hope. You live a life and you will have hopeful moments. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying ultimately and finally, there is no hope for you. You will die and in your death, go to hell. 
That is what Scripture teaches. It is not popular today. It isn't my job to be popular. It's my job to preach. If you believe, be comforted. If you do not, be confronted today with your unbelief.